to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. The right look for an event can make or break the impact it has not only on those attending but also those watching from afar and definitely on how sponsors and even potential commercial partners perceive the event. Rights holders can significantly enhance the experience for fans and corporate partners with the right look, the right environmental branding, whether it is dressing whole cities, a stadium or an activation space. And it is those corporate partners that we are most concerned with. Yes, while there are elements of the look of an event that will be assets or inventory that you can sell to sponsors so for example signage or if you're a brand assets that you can activate as part of your sponsorship however how the overall look is planned and executed can really elevate the prestige and engagement of an event and without putting too crude a point on it means that rights holders can command more sponsorship dollars so clearly it is an important factor interestingly when we are immersed in an event with a well-planned and executed Look, it is almost seamless. We don't really separate it from the activity of the event itself. So we aren't often conscious of it. However, we become very conscious when an event's look is not up to scratch and we definitely feel an impact on our engagement. And it isn't just us. Sponsors and potential commercial partners are also forming perceptions when an event's look isn't right. One person who knows this all too well is Sam Goodwin, Managing Director at CSM Sport and Entertainment. Sam's experiences range across events that include the Olympics, Commonwealth Games and Rugby World Cups. And he joins us later on in the show to share some really great advice on how you can ensure the right look for your events and maximize your commercial revenue. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to episode 77 of Inside Sponsorship. It's amazing having you as a listener on the show. I really mean it. Each and every one of you listening right now who download this show and put aside time to hear from other industry professionals, it really is appreciated. So wherever you are in the world, whatever your connection is to sponsorship, shoot me a note and let me know a little bit about you and I'll give you a shout out on the show just like John Balcom, the founder of of Third Wind Group, a social impact sponsorship consulting firm in Washington, D.C. John wrote to me on LinkedIn and he said, Daniel, I've really enjoyed listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for the great work. I'd be thrilled to connect as a fellow sponsorship enthusiast. And so I connected and he gets a shout out and it's that easy. So thanks for getting in touch, John, and I hope you are crushing it at Third Wind Group. Along with Sam Goodwin, also on the show is Mark Thompson, Cause Head of International Business, to discuss his latest blog. Now, Mark recently attended Leaders Week in London and has been mulling over some of the key takeaways, which are very heavily focused on how data continues to dominate. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, you are in Australia, but you have been to the UK and we'll get into specifics in a little bit but overall you've been to leaders how was it this year is it something you look forward to going to each year yeah I, I love leaders I, I this year I've been lucky enough to go to both the New York and London events and I think you know leaders is is one of my favorite if not my number one favorite conference that we attend each year what makes it so good look what makes leaders so good is I think they've found the perfect balance between networking and education. So you go to conferences, well, you justify your boss to your bosses that you go to <laughs> conferences for educational purposes and to, for professional development. Is that what you said or did you lie? No, I, I'm lucky enough that I make the decision to go myself. However, you know, the networking and and the peer-to-peer conversations and everything is, I think, where it's at. And and Leaders has got a really good, they call it after-dark sessions, which is just networking, essentially. There's off-site, there's on-site. Um, some of them are sponsored and, and you know, people that are not at the actual conference themselves can come along for a drink and, and whatnot. And, and you get to have really good conversations, A, about the content that you heard that day, what was good, what not easy icebreakers right for people you've never met because you've had something in common you've done that day 
but it's such a relaxed and non-confrontational, non-salesy environment to come, to just meet people, understand what's happening in the industry, and you know people are genuinely interested around why you're there and what you do. The balance is important because we go to lots of conferences where it's just content, content, content. Here, have a beer for half an hour and introduce yourself to some people that you've never met and then everyone goes on their way or the focus is too much on the networking and, and people don't feel comfortable. Yeah, and I think because you know it's in London or it's in New York, there's a lot of other stuff people can do to justify a trip there. Right, So there's lots of people that come from the US, throughout Europe, from Australasia into London for leaders because they, they can go and see different teams or leagues or agencies and do business outside of the event to make it a worthwhile trip. And it's accessible and you know, then it's got the, the, the kudos of being a really well attended by some really important people event. So in terms of what you learned, what you found interesting, what really caught your attention, what were some of the key things? Give us the first one. Data continues to dominate is my, um, you know, outside of the fact that leaders leads the networking states, um, data continues to dominate, I think. So, I mean, the conversations around data have been there consistently over the last few years. I've, I've been to leaders, I think, four or five times in the last four or five years and it's always been around data but it's also clear that the conversation is still evolving and so that the conversation is nowhere near finished and previously we will have heard around you know different types of data or big data or what data is now the i think data continues to be the number one challenge of our industry whilst it's the number one topic and the most dominated factor behind all business out there now as well and new businesses being established is still the number one challenge is understanding it and the four pillars of how to understand it are how to use it how to commercialize it how to analyze it and then how by doing those three things we can improve our business because of our data and there were several sessions presented on data utilization there was case studies and the people presenting were you know probably well ahead of the overwhelming majority of the audience so it was quite in, in sort of engaging for a lot of people um particularly the non-north american organizations there it still looks like feels like they're you know four to five years behind the us uh, people that we deal with within our business and the future of data capture analysis and commercialization and business improvement is exciting and as more progressive clubs take it to the next level that will mean more better content for these types of conferences to allow others to sort of replicate it is there much conversation or examples of people just trying things with big data? So as you spoke about, the conversation has been for many years leading up to now, this is data. This is why it's important. People are capturing all this data. They might not have been capturing it well. They might have had it in silos. They're trying to bring it together, help drive their business. You have people coming to conferences like this and giving some great examples. Are there people running around saying things like, oh, we tried this and it was really good, sort of like experimenting with that data and trying to find their way? Yeah, there is a lot of conversation around that and some of the better presentations, which I'll get to sort of later in this conversation today, actually got under the skin of talking around how to do it, sort of from thought leaders or new age businesses around um, around how, how to utilize data. One thing I will say is that the conversation around data has changed and evolved a little bit. So big, as I said, big data and measurement of data were the kind of buzzwords and the big issues of the industry even a year ago, right? No matter what room or topical stream you went into at this conference, though, it all fed back into fan data understanding our fans you know the golden record the holy grail of a single view of a customer and the fan journeys and is it um, actually achievable yeah it's totally achievable mate and and actually even nielsen sports right who have led the way around commercial data and measurement and all of that in the past they used leaders to launch a new product that they've got which is basically a fan data platform so doing exactly that following fan engagement from you know in and a Facebook like all the way through to, you know, buying something, right? And and understanding the value of the fan and the value of the customer. You know, our business ourselves, we're specializing now in in fan data and um, engagement across some sort of data warehousing and, and insights packages and things that we that we offer off the back of CRM based and third party data sources. But you know, again where the conversations all led to at leaders were 
how do we engage with fans? How do we then understand our fans? How do we track their behaviors around our sports team or, or sport? And then how do we use that information for commercial growth? And that's the, that's the bit that people still are and like struggling with a little bit. Does anybody really know the answer or as an industry, are we still all together trying to push forward? We, we can capture the data. We'll talk about technology in a second, but that's really just gathering it and, and understanding it. We still have to act on it. Is anybody really leading the way or as an industry, are we still all sort of trying to push forward together and, and trying to help each other and trying to find those ways about what we actually do with the data? Yeah, look, I think there's some success stories, but I think there's also a lot to learn. And those kind of pioneers that are finding some success now by using data to sell more stuff to the right people for the right reasons and, uh, and align the brands with the objectives they're trying to achieve because of their data, that will change again in 18 months' time around how that looks, why it looks, how those engagements work, how the activations actually change to feed that and understanding what, for an individual brand, what are the important data points that they need to be tracking to find success for them to meet their objectives. That's where it's going to start. When, when we have a, a big enough you know, set of data um, at our fingertips as, as a rights holder, what can we use to actually drive benefits and track objectives for a specific brand as opposed to another brand that we're working with to help you know, make more meaningful sales around sponsorship? One of the interesting things for me around this conversation is this is potentially no different to anything else in any other industry when things are changing. There will be people on the forefront of this who are the early adopters, who are the leaders, who are keen to experiment, keen to try things, test them, see where they go, fail, pick themselves up again, keep driving forward. Then there'll be the organizations that sit back and let those people do that and then follow them. And then there'll be the organizations, the laggards, who won't really get into this important space for a, a long time, either through lack of resources or just vision or it's just the culture of their organization. But involved in all of that is the technology what were the conversations around technology and data there? Yeah, look, I think you're right with what you say. But for me, the most promising thing was like only a year ago, or even earlier this year, even to some extent in New York, people were still walking around talking about we're undertaking a digital transformation project or we're, we're doing an assessment of our needs and everyone looking for that unicorn, you know, that one thing that does everything and we only have to buy one product and it will do everything we want it to be and do rather than, you know, create an ecosystem that suits our business. And I think one thing that came across at, at Leaders in London was that most people I'd spoken to had already embarked on their CRM project. They've already engaged with specialized platforms that were talking to each other on specific business needs. And and that, and those platforms changed depending who you spoke to. Some were talking to loyalty card businesses because they wanted to provide their, their number one challenge for their business was fan engagement, right? And, and fan loyalty and understanding the needs and wants of their customers and fans and others were you know talking about you know crm specific platforms or third-party data sources hook it gum gum you know core software whatever it was there was a whole bunch of people in the room that had taken that first step and that were looking toward towards what the next step would be and that was a, a big shift in the last year and even as i said the last six months so where that will then head is that these people will start realizing the value of bi within their business conferences and particularly this one chock full of great presentations and a lot of the time at conferences presenters they don't go too deep they play it fairly safe and that's okay because quite often the room's full of their competitors so they don't want to give away all of their secrets but you really enjoyed the lafc presentation yeah i did like there was heaps of sessions that piqued my interest through there and i actually went to more partly because of the venue, uh, partly because of the content. I went to more sessions at this conference than I normally would. I, I generally at conferences will arrange a lot of meetings and whatever at the conference, you know, or around it. This conference was at Twickenham, which is a bit harder to get to, which meant people came and spent the whole day there. So you didn't have to like lock in time or miss them. And as a result of that also made it harder to have like meetings outside of 
good And because Twickenham's how far out of roughly central London? Oh, look, you're probably at least 45 minutes on a, on a train and, a, and over, over an hour in a car. Yeah. And it makes it hard for people to sneak off and go back yeah. to meetings and offices yeah, and things is, like that. Which is what I generally have done in, in New York and London. But this year I, I kind of stayed and went to more things because of the venue, but also, you know, the content was good. You know, I think we'll that we were lucky this year. The NFL Euro, European games, international games were on at the same time, so there was some good NFL content. There was some, you know, really interesting stuff from Salesforce and and other sort of technology providers and how they're kind of infiltrating through sport, and that was really interesting as well. The, the ones I don't like are the ones where you get up and you can tell it's a sponsored session, and and don't be fooled every session is a sponsored session pretty much it's about how you deliver it and tell a story well it's, leaders have got to pay the bills right so it's very rare they're going to go hey you're a thought leader we're going to pay you to come and speak to this audience most of the sessions are sponsored and it's what keeps the tickets uh, affordable that's right. exactly right exactly right so you can't begrudge them for that but i like the ones where you can't tell they're a sponsor that it's a sponsored session right and that the, the people get up there and don't overtly try and sell a specific product and we had a sponsored session which actually was my favorite and you know that might sound biased but i promise you it, it does but i'll edit it out yeah i promise you it isn't and and the reason i liked it was that yeah core software are the ones that invited everybody to the session you know we sent the email out and said we'd love you to come so it wasn't session. an open session or were you just encouraging certain people to make sure they were there it was a master class there was lots of master classes they they were free to get to you just had to register because the rooms were smaller um they were a bit more intimate served lunch at the same time i went to a few of them which were really good but ryan bashara from lafc got up and, and presented we did a q a with richard good from tottenham hotspur as well around sort of game day activation and use of technology and software to manage their partnership fulfillment which was a, just off the cuff, like it was just a conversation between he and I. I, I wouldn't say that was, you know, amazing because I, I was involved. But um, but Ryan Bashara got up and and he did he got a, gave us a real under the skin look and feel of the LAFC, and real data, real tech infrastructure, live sort of stuff, live screenshots and views of their systems and their architectural diagrams and why, what flows where, but not only that, then how they use that to generate a commercial proposal to go to market with some really compelling data and actually, you know, gave us a bit of an insight that they had just signed the first ever sleeve sponsorship in MLS history as a result of all of this. And 24 hours later, they announced it as Target. Amazing. And so he t- he walked us through that whole journey, which I thought was brilliant. And, and you know, I sat next to John Stainer from Nielsen and, you know, he was like, wow, this is a really clever technical infrastructure around how they're using insights and other data sources together to generate a really good value proposition. And it bridges the gap between data is important, you've got to collect it, and this is why you should have it, and this is what you, you should be doing with it, and this is the technology you use. It bridges that gap from, yes, we understand all of that, to these are some examples of how we'd actually apply it and some real outcomes that you can then see in press releases and, and can draw that linkage right back through. Yeah, and if I was a rights holder, I mean, the, the benefit of LAFC that we learned in the session with Ryan was that they ha- they were a brand new club so they had the they had the benefit of starting from scratch in a in an age where they had the ability to build their whole business around technology so it was a it was a big advantage for them that rather they, than adding things in and adapting as you go they didn't have to break down you know archaic or and IT saying we can't do that yeah, we can't support we, that yeah we got to do it piece by piece they they could do it all in one hit right but the success they've had commercially the way they've structured things like their their fan club, which is a separate business unit, supported, invested in, like the 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 football club have equity in it, but they and they support them. But the way those guys use data to understand their fans and the star power of LA, Will Ferrell's like leader of it, and all this sort of stuff it was pretty cool. But so it gave us a little, it gave a bit of color to the presentation. But the thing that if I was a rights holder sitting in that audience, I would have taken away was, was the fact that taking the jump actually just pulling the band-aid off and going all in on a a proper BI team with proper data sources, with a proper infrastructure, whatever it is, understanding it, 
being dialed in across all business units, reading from the same hymn sheet, it has really big commercial upside. Because these guys, whilst they had the advantage of coming at it from scratch, they also had the disadvantage where they had zero dollars in revenue. They're now competing with everybody. They're, they're, they've sold enough partnerships to be at the same level as those established teams. You know, in, in a market in LA, which features a lot of big name properties, right? Now, I heard a rumor that you can access a demand recording of that session. What we did was actually approached Ryan afterwards and said, can, can we do that all over again and record it? And we did that. And he was um, like, weren't you paying attention the first time, Mark? <laughs> and so in my blog, um, people can go and, and download that and actually watch the presentation. Outstanding. And listeners, you can find that at coresoftware.com forward slash blog. Any more trips before Christmas? Can you fit any in? Yeah, I've got a few, actually. Um, I'm leaving straight from here to do a bit of a Australian tour. Yes. <laughs> so today I'll be in both Melbourne and Brisbane today. So Canberra, Melbourne, Brisbane in one day? Oh, in about six hours, actually. And then Brisbane tomorrow for the day, back here for the weekend. In Canberra all week next week, which is rare. Unheard of? Unheard of. Birthday week. So Is it? Yeah, oh, well, happy birthday. Thanks, mate. The 50's a big milestone, <laughs> but so well done. Thanks. I look 60, so I'm doing Feel well. 85? Yeah. My birth certificate says I'm much younger, which I think is a typo. <laughs> and then on Monday the 2nd, I'm in off to London for two weeks. So European hit for to finish off the year. Combine that with a staff Christmas party, a few socials with clients, hopefully a bit of business to finish the year. I've still got a bit of time in the diary if anyone wants a coffee or whatever. And then, yeah, back here for, for Christmas, potentially a New Zealand visit to a couple of key clients. And then January, start all over again. Excellent. And Santa will be able to do all his shopping duty-free. Well, mate, I, I've, I've heard some comments around the office that I'm given my, the girth of my waist that I actually may be Santa. Well, I didn't want to get the listeners too excited, but if you do catch up with Mark for a beer or a coffee, please ask him to put his Santa suit on because it is a sight to behold. Safe travels. Cheers, buddy. The right look for an event can make or break the impact it has on not only those attending, but also those watching from afar and definitely on how sponsors and even potential commercial partners perceive the event. So clearly it is an important factor. How the overall look is planned and executed can really elevate the prestige and engagement of an event. And without putting too crude a point on it, means that rights holders can command more sponsorship dollars. One person who knows this all too well is Sam Goodwin, Managing Director at CSM Sport entertainment. Sam's experiences range across events that include the Olympics, Commonwealth Games and Rugby World Cups and he joins us now to share some really great advice on how you can ensure the right look for your events and maximise your commercial revenue. Here's Sam. Sam Goodwin, welcome to the show. As you might know, if you've listened to a couple of episodes, we always ask an icebreaker question or two just to get the show started and for the listeners just to get to know Sam Goodwin a little bit. And in my research and trying to come up with an icebreaker question, I saw that you were a marketing consultant to the 2008 Asian Beach Games held in Bali. And my research tells me that there's 41 sports in the Asian Beach Games and a fair few of them I hadn't actually heard of before. So my question is for you, if you had to compete in the Asian Games, which sport do you think you could be the most competitive in? Wow, that's uh, taken me back a few years. And 41, I think that's increased quite significantly from when I worked on it. You're right, there's some weird and wonderful sports in the mix. It definitely wouldn't be beach sepak takraw, which is probably one of the most skillful sports I've ever seen. And if you haven't seen it, it's like uh, it's volleyball, but played without using your hands. So... They, it's, they, they knock it over the net with their feet. They perform these overhead kicks to spike the ball. It, just look it up on YouTube. It's, it's awesome. I've always loved uh, a bit of kabaddi since I used to watch it on TV in the UK many, many years ago. But I would probably have most chance at something called wood ball, which I don't know if it's still in there, but it, it, it was when I did it. It's a cross between golf and croquet. So you use a croquet mallet to hit a ball down a course and through a little arch. And um, it just always sort of struck me as being something, yeah, I could actually do that. And 
I think it was invented by some English guy living out in uh, India, or I think, or and and he he wanted to play croquet but didn't have a lawn big enough to cro for for croquet. He had terraces in his garden, and so these thin terraces, and so that was why he invented this sport. And now they're still playing it. So um, yeah, that was what that was probably what I'd go for. It sounds a lot less strenuous than the first two sports that you spoke yeah. about. <laughs> Second icebreaker question. You're on the show today to help us understand what the look of an event is and why it is important. So how would you describe your look, the Sam Goodwin look? Yeah, I don't really have uh, a particular sort of look. I suppose you'd say very, very relaxed with a bit of a bit of a I don't care twist. Um, it, it takes a lot to get me out of a pair of jeans. Um, you don't find me dressing up for meetings all that often. And at home, you're most likely to find me in a geeky 70s or 80s pop culture reference T-shirt. Very odd thing, I suppose. My staff are quite amused by the fact that I often wear brightly coloured promotional freebie sunglasses a lot of the time. <laughs> and, and that's simply because I always lose or break nice pairs of sunnies. And I, can't, I just can't be bothered to keep shelling out for new ones. So whenever they hand out free sunnies, I'm like, yeah, okay, give me a pair of those. Um, and that's how I roll. Very good. So Sam, I've just touched on some of your work experience, but what has been your progression and experience leading up to your current role, which is Managing Director at CSM Sport and Entertainment? I started out on the sponsorship side, sort of pretty much my first proper role was working within the commercial team at the English Premier League many, many years ago. Uh, I was there for about four years. Um, then I headed out to Qatar for the Asian Games in 2006, and that was the start of a, a journey on the major events merry-go-round. So I went from there uh, then to the Beach Games, Asian Beach Games in 2008, as you mentioned, and after that, I joined Icon, which was a specialist look agency, which was one of the agencies that then came together to become CSM later on. And I joined them to do the 2009 FIFA Confederations Cup and 2010 FIFA World Cup, which were in South Africa. So uh, that was when I learned the ins and outs of the branding game you know we were based in a in a print factory there and you know oh, back in the days of solvent printing so you walked into the factory and sort of like you, you were high <laughs> pretty, pretty much the entire time and so i followed that up with look and feel projects for them on the 2012 olympics london uh, 2014 commonwealth games in glasgow and 2015 rugby world cup in uh, the uk sort of uh, where i was actually seconded into the organizing committee while still working for the sort of contractor that seconded in uh, and based in uh, in Twickenham. We were actually in the stadium. So um, that was the, the sort of journey there. And then I got the opportunity to move to Australia with my family and develop that live event and branding side of the business over here. Uh, there was already an office with a rights sales and brand management and talent management sort of offering from the Sydney office. So after a couple of years of building the uh, live side of the business, I had the opportunity to take over managing the rest of our functions here in Australia. And uh, and so here we are. That was about a year ago, uh, or yeah, just under that, uh, that I sort of started working on that sort of side of things. So you just alluded there to some of the capability that CSM have, but for those that haven't heard of CSM before, who are CSM and what do they do? And it would be great if you could include some examples of the types of clients that you work with. We are a full-service sponsorship and event agency with a primary focus on sport. We function on three main streams, rights sales for rights holders, sponsorship management for, for brands, and live event delivery, which includes branding and execution for basically anyone, which could include experiential builds, event look, wayfinding, digital activations, and so on. We also have hospitality sales departments, a retail branding department, and talent management and um, uh, athlete representation as well. We're UK uh, headquartered, US owned, offices in 16 countries, I think. And so I'm one of those sort of satellite offices here in Australia. Examples, clients in Australia, uh, we are currently working on the sort of uh, right sales side with on behalf of Netball Victoria. On the brand side, we look after HSBC sponsorship of the Rugby Sevens. And we're currently engaged to deliver the look and feel of the ATP Cup, which is coming up in January. And we did the Invictus Games, for example, for their look and feel. On an international basis, I mean, you know, the list is 
as long as your arm, but you know you've got all the uh, all the major federations, all the major events, and some huge huge brands, Land Rover, etc., and uh, and huge clients from the right side like Chelsea. So, yeah, we're it, it, we're definitely uh, in the mix in the in terms of the the bigger scale. And CSM are very heavily focused on the look of events. What exactly? does that mean and what does the end the the implemented product that you deliver physically look like in terms of what it actually covers in that look this kind of thing obviously is where i've come from this is my background so this is what i'm sort of most passionate about globally sort of csm has delivered the look uh, of the majority of the world's largest events at one time or another and that includes olympics fifa world cup rugby world cup cricket world cup Basketball World Cup, Invictus Games, European Games, Pan American Games, Ryder Cup, Champions League, Formula E. And so the fact that we're doing all that means that those guys need it. They, they understand that there is something there that is, that is important. The look of an event, it's a bit of a nebulous term, but in essence, it's the design elements which come together to give an event its identity. And then it also refers to the, the, the delivery of those elements in a physical space. So it can cover a vast array of items and applications from an, a physical point of view, the basic fence dressing flags, banners, to more complex vehicle wraps, even uniforms, custom builds and um, installations. It incorporates from a design side elements, including the logo, obviously, but also messaging, social handles, brand colors and designs like patterns and things like that, mascots, player imagery, stadium imagery, and basically anything else that is woven through the identity of the event. It can encompass huge things like gigantic Olympic rings hung off the side of a stadium or a grandstand wrap and stuff like that, or tiny decals, sort of like uh, We've done ones on the rim of a basketball hoop or the top of an top of a net in volleyball, you know, because if there's a camera there, it's catching those sort of spaces and you want the look, you want some identity for the event to be visible in that shot and details matter. It feels like a bit of a dumb question, but I do want to get your perspective as the expert in this space. But why is the look of an event so important? People don't realize that the look is there, but they would notice if it wasn't. It's crucial to their experience of an event. So uh, some I talk about, you think about Beijing 2008 Olympics, what's your abiding memory? You just think there was lots of red. I remember lots of red and yellow. That, that was the look. London 2012, people go, London 2012, yeah, I remember that. It was, it was pink and blue and green and purple, and there was that weird jagged logo. The look is in every photo. It's in the background of every piece of footage. It's on the sports equipment. It's on. It's the. It's the badge that tells you when you look at a picture or you turn on the TV. Oh, I know what this is. You know, I know what I'm watching. It's. It's the identifier, and it's also. Um, so I mean, that, that's the, the general thing. But it's also essential to raising the profile of an event. So when an event looks professional and high quality, more people will believe that it is. And its value in sponsorship or broadcast terms reflects this. You know, the people will pay more for a quality product. So it's there for everyone's experience. You know, the viewers at home, fans in the stadium, even the players on the field. And Invictus Games an example of that, where they primarily are doing the look for the players' experience to get give them the feeling that they're participating in a world-class event. And that, that's not to mention the people behind the scenes, you know, the thousands of people that work on these events who take a huge amount of pride from being part of something. There is a little story here that I sort of, uh, I recall from uh, London 2012 um, that kind of illustrates it. The head of overlay there is a chap called uh, Guy Lodge. He was um, showing a, pol a politician, a minister, who was vaguely involved around the Eton Dorney Rowing Centre at the time. And they'd done a huge amount of work on this place in terms of overlay. They'd put in new facilities, they'd dug trenches, they'd added new fibre, new drainage, new grandstands, the whole works. They'd done all this stuff. And this minister had been down to site quite a few times and he was always, all oh, right, okay. Is it, is it going to be finished on time? Is it, you know, so, is everything, is it, yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds great. But he never really showed the level of enthusiasm that, that sort of guy wanted him to show. 
And then one day they came down and our boys had literally just unpacked the first sort of piece of branding and were putting up a massive piece of blue scrim across the front of the grandstand, you know, massive sort of uh, bit of branding. And the guy suddenly lit up and goes, oh, it's coming along nicely, isn't it? You know, it's really, <laughs> it's really coming together. And, and guy just like, oh, God, I can't believe it. But that, that's what it means to people. That is sort of like, you know, where it comes from. It means we're ready. You know, we're, we're getting there. This is, this is put your game face on. There's that expression, you know, you don't throw the world's biggest party in and not get dressed for it, which I think came out of Sydney 2000. And it, it, it's saying, yeah, let's, let's do this. It's a great story because I think it it really drives home that point of the importance of it and and raising the level of an event up and giving it that authority. And as you said, people notice when it's not there and even before the event that politician noticed that it wasn't there. So now that we have a good understanding of what the look means and, and that great example and story, why is it important? In terms of, let's set the scene for the rest of the chat so people have some concepts to anchor your advice to. What examples can you give of a look that's been done really, really well and what we can learn from them? There are obviously hundreds of good examples, but I'll give you a, a few that we've worked on and, and then actually one that we, we don't work on. Um, first up, I would say, is the Champions League. And apologies because my, my sort of uh, soccer background comes through in a couple of these sort of examples, but the Champions League is Europe's premier sort of club football competition, and its look is extremely strong. What they did was they stripped down the clutter of football stadiums. Football stadiums, you know, they've got sponsors left, right, and centre. Champions League come in, they insist on a clean venue. You, their look goes over everything that all the club sponsors are obscured by the Champions League brand. They put the tournament brand front and center, and that drew attention to that brand, and it cleared space, which reduced... They, so they then introduced a reduced number of sponsors. You know, I think they have six key partners or something like that, and that's it. And so they drew huge value from those, and they got really good recognition because they were in an uncluttered space. And they made the event brand a selling point not just you know the event itself the, the fact is these sponsors were buying into a premium brand and uh, getting to use that brand in their communications to work alongside it and when you see those sponsors activating and stuff like that you, you see how keen they are to use the champions league star ball the colors the the little a snippet of music that is so sort of uh, famous and part of that. So they, they want to do that. And so I think that's a great example of, of saying, we're going to enhance this brand and, and make it look the part. So again, that's one. Different effect, same concept, different effect. This is, uh, I would give, is, is Leicester City Football Club. Um, again, sort of, uh, sort of in soccer, but uh, it's a bit different because this is a club. But they wanted something to unify the team and the fans. They, they had a stadium where the signage and branding had accumulated over the years in a variety of different styles. There were different shades of blue, different fonts, all sorts. So they brought us in to sweep clean and implement a brand new look which was underpinned by their main sponsor brand, which was King Power. It was the King Power Stadium and all this sort of thing. So we designed something that combined them, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the sponsor into the fabric of the club. And it brought their values to the fore and a new hashtag, hashtag fearless. And all of this was applied to the, uh, not just their stadium, but all their communication channels, you know, everything from their stationery to their website and sort of so on and so forth. And they did all this about, Four weeks before the end of the season, the start of the season, it was a it was a bit of a rush to get it all in in time, and uh, that season they did the impossible and lifted the Premier League trophy as five thousand to one outsiders, and so uh, we take all the credit for that rather humbly, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, but that that I think just shows that uh, they connected the fans and the uh, and the team and they created a new spirit, so um, yeah, that's another one. Couldn't go through without mentioning London 2012, which had a really modern approach to a look. They put a huge amount of resource into it. You know, they had a 40-person team internally just for look, and that was then matched again by us externally, sort of like working on the designs uh, on the delivery side. It was very design-led. Everything came from the colours and from that logo. People didn't like the logo when it first came out, but I think it was ahead of its time in that it was so flexible um they were creating 
something that was recognizable no matter what you did to it. So you could take a small section of it, you could crop it, you could fill it in with different colors. So sponsors loved it because they could recolor it to their own color, still recognizable. They could infill it with their own brand messaging, still recognizable. And it made venue dressing quite interesting and, and sort of um, there was a, we were able to have a lot of variety. They also use mascots and things like that, but it, it was a really well thought through brand. And I, as I say, I think um, quite ahead of its time. And which actually brings me to one close, the one closer to home, which I think is done very well, which is the Australian Open. And they rebranded only a couple of years ago, I think it was, uh, and introduced the the very simple AO logo. And I think at the time that there was a bit of kickback against that as well. People not all that impressed by it. But I think it's proved itself to be a powerful, flexible, recognizable, and ultimately very commercially successful brand change, which they take all the way through their event. And, you know, that logo can be used as a pattern, you know, just like a repeating pattern that they use in the background. It means that everywhere you go, there is that touch point constantly reminding you. And then therefore the event brand is stronger. Therefore, they're reaping the commercial rewards. You speak about logos. Many people start with a concept or an idea and then give it a name and then they come up with the colors and the logo. And sometimes they think that branding is enough. Clearly, you don't agree with that being enough. So where in that whole process does creating a look actually start? Where should it be involved? You're right. I mean, don't get me completely wrong. A logo is a great start, but it's not enough. Um, If you imagine a venue that was just plastered with logo repeats, I don't think that would work for me as a fan. It's possible to develop a great event look using a logo as a starting point, but the best look programs have a logo that was created with one eye on the look. Having a strong color palette, a good background pattern, ensuring that there's a logo application for different shapes, portrait landscape, some way of standing out on a thin strip of tear dressing. You know, when you are branding a venue, you've got so many different areas that you need to cover that you need multiple assets and and a variety of colors in order to just make the venue look its best. Um, We've had events where we've only been given a logo or something like that, and we're struggling for assets. We're trying to create more assets, create a, a pattern or bring a color to the fore that maybe hadn't previously been considered. So to do all that effectively and ensure an impactful, professional look and feel for a venue or an event, it takes a bit of skill and experience to, to look at that and sort of go what is required. And so it's, it's unlikely to be uh, something that an in-house team or whatever is, it has the skills and the experience to necessarily do. And they won't even necessarily realize it needs to be done. As I said, it's, it's quite imperceptible in some ways people don't realize how important this is and the amount of thought that goes into it so in terms of timing when it comes to the delivery of a look program um, we can be involved anything from 18 months out of an event um, on the big programs to only a few weeks obviously the major international events take the longest but you know even when we do smaller events the same amount of effort and attention to detail goes into those and is is necessary to getting that best result and i think that that elevates things beyond what people might immediately sort of think is is required so some event owners or delivery people maybe forget about this aspect of producing an event and you obviously spoke about its importance earlier but if we were to contrast it, what sort of negative impact can not thinking about the look of an event have, especially from a commercial perspective? People forget it because it is so fundamental and it's just assumed and people don't realize, as I mentioned, the thought and planning that goes into it. Some sort of events on tight budgets also see it as a nice to have or an add-on, you know, something that, oh, yeah, well, if we've, if we've got a bit of budget left, we'll dress the venue up and I don't think it's I don't think it is that I think it's far more fundamental than that. In fact, you know, the number of times we get asked to make up with using look for for sort of things uh, that are not perfect in terms of other delivery, you know, sort of, sort of a piece of the venue isn't finished. Oh, can you put some scrim around that? And we can do that and actually makes it look so much better. 
but we're often being asked to do these things right at the end. Um, so, yeah, it does get forgotten. It's paramount to the fan experience. It, uh, it engages people, even without their knowledge. And it, so it, it provides a framework for uh, enhancing the sponsor content, as I mentioned, you know, in terms of the like Champions League and stuff like that, and it deepens their connections with the brand. So the impact, the, or the negative impact, I think it would impact on the atmosphere without it. I think it impacts on the recollections of the event, both in terms of the people who are there, but also the, you know, the the, the record, the photos, the footage, the those sort of things. You want your event to stand the test of time. And one of the ways to do that is to have the brand visible in in those moments. Those moments are retained forever. And if you don't have your event look in the background, then all people are going to see is team A playing against team B. So, yeah, so it can impact on that. It must be, for, for people on the ground, uh, the, the fans, it must be coupled with traditional, you know, great customer service. You know, you've got to, people's experience is still, that's still paramount to people's experience. It's in a weakened event brand if you don't do it. And, and also often poor delivery of sponsor assets. You know, the sponsors want their pound of flesh in any event. They've paid for it. They need to be recognized. If you just slap them on without too much thought, they're not going to get the recognition. They're not going to get the recollection. They're not going to get the value and they might not renew. So, you know, yeah, it can have, I think, I think it is quite fundamental. Well, you gave the example earlier of the Champions League and clean stadium, and FIFA are well known for that. And you mentioned the London Olympics and the flexibility that the logo provided to sponsors. How does the look relate to signage? As many people would probably just assume it's kind of the same thing. How does it actually differ? It's a language thing. Some people might be meaning the same thing, but for me, Personally, signage is informative. Its primary function is to carry a message. So signage would include wayfinding, functional area signage, event and venue information, whereas look is primarily decorative. I think where the terminology between the two blurs is when you come to sponsor branding, because that could be seen as, as functional, you know, delivering a need to the sponsor. It can be seen as as sort of decorative and woven into the event, and and actually, I think the way that it is perceived is is quite important to how well it is delivered. But realistically, whatever the words are, the two elements, sort of look and signage, is frequently what our contracts are called. You know, look and signage supplier, look signage and wayfinding. You know, those are the those are the kind of things that are uh, usually sort of written on the top of our uh, tenders. So the two are very very closely linked. Signage uh, can and should be used to complement the look. You know, it, it should be carefully designed. It should be thought out. It should have. It should positively reflect the event brand, so that it's another touch point. People are coming into an event. They are taking in the atmosphere. That's one thing, and they're also taking in the information. But those two things should be presented in the same way. Why isn't the look something that the marketing or brand manager just does as part of their remit why does sponsorship and commercial managers really need to be involved in it well i think i've made it sort of fairly sort of clear that it's complicated um which is <laughs> which is, is is i suppose the first sort of reason that it shouldn't just be dumped on on some sort of poor soul who who may not have it as their sort of uh, primary remit also Look involves everyone. In every organizing committee of a major event that I've worked on, and much smaller events as well, but the look team are one of the most connected and sought-after departments. Maybe only transport, I think, you know, often were quite popular, and ticketing are usually pretty popular as well. But other than that, you know, everybody needs some sort of look. Everyone wants their space to look good. They want something to sort of make their volunteers feel happy. They want something to um, make their VIPs sort of feel comfortable. Uh, they need something to communicate information to to people. So they're all we 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 talk to them all. We you know and it's a very very interconnected department. Um, not least obviously because yeah the commercial side as you say is is fairly fundamental to it. So the development of a look should take in all the stakeholders, all sorts of stakeholders. And it's one of the first things that we talk about when we, um, when we get involved in a look program earlier on, early on is uh, we sort of say our first role is stakeholder management. You know, it's, it's 
leading them down a, a journey where everybody sees what we're planning on doing, agrees with it, and therefore is comfortable that it is happening in that particular way. So that's the first stage of it. And then the implementation, well, that takes in everybody else. Properly delivering branding for an event, uh, a venue, a tournament, as I said, is very complicated. It involves a great deal of detail. You know, our main function is we sit there with spreadsheets. It's not all pretty pictures. It's spreadsheets of sizes and substrates and finishing details. And, and it, it, all those things are part of the knowledge base that goes into in terms of delivering something like this. So knowledge of print substrates, application and fixing methodologies, you know, what works in what conditions, yeah, how uh, customer behavior, what they're looking for, that sort of thing. So, yeah, as I say, it's it's a very broad ranging piece and and it's great fun to work on. I mean, that's why I, why I enjoy it so much. So how do all these considerations of the execution around the look fit with the commercial realities of sports sponsorship and commercial brand exposure? And I'm particularly interested in whether events should be working from a, a sponsorship first place or an event first space in terms of which kind of takes priority and informs the other. Yeah, they're complementary. I mean, one should not be prioritized to the detriment of the other. At various times, it might make sense to put more focus on on the event brand over the um, commercial brands or, or vice versa. But most of the time, they should be working together to enhance the overall experience. If a property, a, a, a event or whatever, if your property doesn't have a strong identity, then what exactly are you selling to a sponsor? It might as well just be a media buy. Sponsorship managers are always striving to prove that they can connect with their sponsors, that they can offer intangible value, you know, and, and assets that go above and beyond. But the best value that they can offer is having a strong rights holder brand, because that's what the sponsors are buying into. You know, and, and that's what the connection that they want. So don't ignore your brand. And it, I mean, I switch on, I watch a bit of the football coverage in the in the UK and the amount of times these days that the LEDs around the pitch are showing internal club messaging, you know, be it when the next game is or sort of join the, join the uh, membership program or whatever. But that takes up a significant chunk. They've obviously, they're not getting media, they're not getting commercial value for that, but they've put their own brand a little, you know, given it a little bit of a boost. And so, yeah, I think it, it it is very important. And I think people chase the chase the easy money. You know, they they go right, cool, brilliant. You you know, if you give us the money, we'll put your brand everywhere. Well, what does that do for you as a club? You know, it's uh, you you you've got to you've got to protect your identity. Where if, if you imagine um, you imagine the sponsors themselves, you know, the way that they treat their identities. And how precious they are about um, ensuring their brand is reflected correctly. Well, events and rights holders should be the same. How much of it is now redundant considering we can do so much digitally these days? So digital signage on the field of play has come a long way and the technology is improving all the time. I think it would be futile to try and um, hold back this process. Ultimately, the ability to have targeted advertising for different markets via virtual signage will prove to be the way the market goes. So I think that is a very valid sort of uh, technology. However, that in no way makes up for the need, makes the need for a look redundant. You know, um, the main target of a look is the spectators in the venue, force your spectator to sit in a sanitized venue where the surrounds are just generic solid colors to make virtual signage work better, and the atmosphere is sure to suffer. Also, the interior of many stadiums is pretty similar. And so the opportunity to provide a sense of place combined with the event mark is often on the exterior of the venue. So this is where that iconic photo moment of an event is often generated because you've got the architecture of a stadium or a venue in the background. And if you've got the look properly done, that uh, photo will last long beyond most people's memory of the event. Okay, so yes, it's still very important. That's why I had you on the show. But what are some of the do's and don'ts of dressing an event, especially when considering the sponsorship elements? There are 
many, many do's and dozens. You can probably go on forever and ever sort of uh, with all the mistakes that people can uh, and do make. And so most of our clients sort of because they have worked on previous events come into uh, their, their new event thinking that to themselves, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that the last person made. Uh, I'm going to do it better. We're going to fix all those problems. And instead, they go and then make a whole new bunch of mistakes and encounter a whole new bunch of problems, which is kind of one of the things that keeps it interesting and keeps us on our toes. In terms of the the, the things to make sure that you do, I would say do make sure your event brand is powerful, recognizable, and crucially flexible. It needs to be able to adapt to fit a wide variety of applications. It's amazing how many brands we come across, even for major events, that don't have that flexibility in their in their brand uh, and have brands which are really awkward when it comes to trying to dress venues. I mean, uh, the Commonwealth Games is a great example because under every Commonwealth Games logo, they insist on having the text Commonwealth Games uh, and then the Roman numerals. That's so fiddly. It's so fiddly and so difficult to do. And it only comes in one format, you know, um, portrait format, and that's, you know. So... Yeah, try and put that on a piece of tear dressing and no one can see it. Do try and prevent, provide a, a sense of time and place uh, and I was there experience. I think that's really important in today's sort of um, uh, digitally connected world, you know, shareability and all that sort of thing. The, you, you want people to take photos, to share them. And if you give people a good opportunity to do that, and sometimes just a logo stuck to a wall, but if you can add a date and a time or whatever, then people will just jump in front of it. I, I love going to venues and watching fans just interact with the look by just going and going, hey, look, 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 I'll take a photo, take a photo. And it's great. I, it's, you know, really makes it worthwhile. Do incorporate sponsors into your look. And I, I mean, it, even going so far as to say, give them more than they might expect. You know, if you're dressing a venue, there's no reason why you can't add in an extra sponsor logo here or there, you know. Put them on the wayfind, bottom of the wayfinding totems. Put them on the in the corner of a big banner where there's a room for a sponsor lockup. They'll thank you for it, and you know it, it sort of uh, it just helps you in future negotiations. Obviously, do allocate proper resource and budget to the dressing of the event. Uh, it's obvious that I would say that, but you know, give yourself sufficient time and uh, sufficient budget to do it. The don'ts, uh, therefore, are fairly sort of straightforward. Don't leave it to the last minute. You know, it can be done a lot quicker than people believe it can be done. And particularly in terms of printing and things like that, it doesn't take necessarily as long as a lot of the um, uh, a lot of printers would have you believe. But to do it right does take a bit of time. Approvals always take time. So please give us, you know, plenty of, of lead in. Don't settle for good enough. As, uh, as I mentioned, the, the brands that you're courting or working with would never accept that approach for their brands. So rights holders should be the same. You know, the idea of, yeah, yeah, that, that looks good enough. You know, a number of times I see rumpled banners, you know, just badly presented, badly presented look in venues and go, why? Why is somebody even accepting that? How are they walking past that and going, that's okay for my brand, my event, my club? It should just, you know, they should they should be kicking out against that stuff and going, you know, if a if a premium sponsor wouldn't accept that for their brand, don't accept it for yours. And yeah, that that really niggles me. And I guess just don't underestimate the amount of work involved. You know, don't think that it's it's just something that you know, oh yeah, yeah, we'll give that to so and so, and they can just you know go off and 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 work on it. It, it needs it needs thinking about genuinely thinking about and um and it will need you to make decisions and and you can't just sort of uh park it and sort of you know hope they hope it'll just happen it, it, it won't you mentioned one of the do's is to have budget so what kind of budgets are spent on this are there any sort of percentage indicators or kpis or anything like that and i'm interested in what the main areas you think it should really get spent on first and foremost Yes, experience tells us that a typical budget for a well-executed look will be made up of roughly 40 to 50% of production, uh, we're actually making or printing the items, which I think comes 
as a surprise to a lot of people because they think, oh, well, you know, that banner only costs X. So, you know, if I've got this amount in my budget, that's fine. It's it's half or sometimes less than half of the total budget is actually going on making the stuff. It used to be sort of close to 30 percent. But I think, you know, we've we've managed to sort of reduce uh, installation costs a bit over the years. Twenty five to thirty five percent is installation. So that's the guys to go and actually physically put it in place, put it up, um, install it in a way that looks professional and not just, as I was saying, uh, thrown up. And about 25% of the project management, which, as I've said, is, um, you know, that's that's the sort of time and, the, and the, the effort that goes into planning it in detail and making sure that when it goes up, it goes up seamlessly. Like anything, budgets can vary wild, wildly depending on event size and local market pressures. But I can give you a couple of examples at the very top end, I suppose, a major multi-sport games might spend upwards of $10 million on the look. A single sport but multi-venue tournament might spend between sort of two and five million dollars. So that's, you know, those are those are international, internationally recognizable events. A huge amount could still be achieved with a, a whole lot less and a single venue would be in the hundreds of thousands maybe smaller events might be sub 100k but when you go below that i would say you're just buying some branding which is no less important you know that's that's clearly something that you know many events have to do and you know we we provide we do all that as well but um but yeah then you probably don't need all the extra time and and research and look development if you're doing a much much smaller event Budgets are always tight, doesn't matter where you are in the world. So are there any things that can be done to help maximise the, the budget and the effectiveness of those areas that you spoke about? Clever design is a large part of it. You know, if you, if you think about wanting to reuse your product over multiple years, for example, and therefore you avoid putting items into the design that will date it, then you can potentially reuse. Um, we work on a number of events here in Sydney that uh, the, the, the branding is in storage for sort of 90% of the year, and then out it comes and goes out on the event, does its thing, goes away again, and the client adds a few elements that give it the sense of time and place, you know, for that one particular year, but the, the lion's share of it is, is fairly generic and is able to be reused time and time and time again. In order to do that, you need to make sensible choices over the substrates that you use. Some substrates survive better than others. And by that, I mean, obviously, if you do everything on printed self-adhesive vinyl, when you peel that off the wall, that's thrown away. If you do it on uh, a PVC banner, yeah, it might look all right. But if you put it into storage and fold it up, it's not going to come out the other end after a, a year looking great. So we recommend trying to use fabrics, which store a lot better and go up a lot cleaner and stuff like that. So that's just the kind of knowledge that sort of experience has brought. Repeating use of hardware. So, you know, if you've bought a, a framework or something like that, store that, use it again, produce a, a brand new piece of print for it by all means. But, you know, you've, um, you've, you've saved yourself your hardware costs over the years. You can also rent hardware. So if you've got a short sort of um, a one-off event, uh, instead of buying it, we, we have a, a range of sort of uh, frames and stuff like that and feather flag sort of hardware, et cetera, in stock. So therefore, you know, you can get cheaper prices by by just renting that stuff. Moving items from location to location. By the time we got to the uh, athletics events at the Invictus Games, almost every single item that you were looking out on in the athletics field had been used previously at one of the other venues. And then those venues had shut down and, and we gradually bought all the items through to athletics and reused them. So something that had been sort of uh, tear dressing in one venue was now up on the sides of the athletic stadium. So, yeah, that's that's one thing that could be done. Cricket Australia ship a kit of parts around the country, obviously going test match to test match, uh, T20 to C20, etc. And uh, and we manage that sort of process for them. Upfront investment in design, this kind of is a time saver, I suppose. If you do that process I talked about of, of engaging your stakeholders and being sensible about your design early on, then you will waste a lot less time in artworking later and, and approvals and all that sort of thing. Because if everyone has bought into a basic principle, then that can be rolled out relatively 
simply without you having to sort of tweak or um, change every single piece along the way. And by doing, if you, uh, that also enables things to be faster because if you're tweaking every item along the way, then you're going to end up producing late and then you end up with higher print costs. And that kind of brings me to the whole concept of early production. You know, if you, um, if you press the button relatively early, that enables offshore production, which is obviously one of the biggest sort of opportunities for saving if you can ship stuff in. It's particularly if you can actually physically ship it in, put it on the slow boat rather than sort of having to fly it in. So that can take a couple of months, but the cost savings can be significant. Some great advice and insights, Sam. But some people will be listening and thinking, but I don't actually own the venue my event is in. What advice do you have for them? No problem at all. There's uh, there's a million and one ways to temporarily dress a venue from completely temporary one-off branding to reusable systems. One of the things we try and encourage people to do and it sometimes requires a bit of uh, a bit of backwards and forwards, a bit of negotiation. But don't think that you have no way of changing the venue that you operate in. There are plenty of deals to be struck. So two hirers of the same venue might share the cost of implementing a new fixing system between them and the venue, and then everyone sees an improvement. You know, there's a there's a new fixing system in place which looks better for the the hirers that might be cheaper to implement on a, a regular basis or allow reuse, as I sort of mentioned. And then for the venue owner, it's a potentially a new revenue opportunity or it's something that, you know, encourages additional hirers to sort of to, to come to the venue. So things like joint installs, you know, a venue um, might be required to do some clean venue elements coming into a, into a match or cover up other branding. Well, instead of allowing them to just cover up, give them your own branding to cover the things up with. Pay half of that installation cost. There's so much double handling when people are uh, sort of not 100% owning the venues uh, that can be reduced. And it's one of those things that we really enjoy sort of sitting down and, and sort of working through the strategy. Say what you want to achieve and there'll be a way to do it. Sam, if people want to connect with you and keep the conversation going around this topic or learn more about CSM Sport and Entertainment, what can they do? I'm pretty easy to get in touch with, but look me up on LinkedIn, email me, check out our website, which is csm.com, or there's also csmlive.com, which is focused more on the um, event branding sort of side. Anywhere where the Australia office contact details are given, that all comes through to me. So, um, yeah, very happy to, to have a chat. Fascinating chat, Sam Goodwin, Managing Director at CSM Sport and Entertainment. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside the look of events. Been a pleasure. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that chat with Sam. I loved how he easily gave us some of the top line stuff that we obviously expect, but also was able to give us some very specific advice and enhance it all with some great stories. So if you'd like to connect with Sam and keep the conversation going, head to the show notes at coresoftware.com. As Sam said, he's easy to get in touch with. So in the show notes, you'll find a link to his LinkedIn profile as well as csm.com and csmlive.com. That's a wrap for episode 77. Thanks again to John Balker for getting in touch and letting us know that you love the show. So now it's up to you, the rest of the listeners. Please reach out and say hi, and I'll give you a shout out in episode 78. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Core Software's head of international business, Mark Thompson, maybe catch up for a beer or a coffee and have a chat about all things sponsorship in his travels, you can catch him on mark.thompson at Core Software software.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponsurf. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.